Brilliant, 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 brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Bless you. Um, can you hear? Is, is the mic on? Can you hear me? Brilliant. Oh, so good to um, so good to be with you. My name's Toby. I'm one of the uh, leaders here at Emmanuel. Um, um, it's a really special time of year. Uh, some might say it's the most wonderful time of the year, and uh, we're in the the, the the season of the church calendar um, that we call Advent, um, and uh, this is the season where we uh, eagerly anticipate uh, the, the coming, the birth, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ at Christmas, and um, to, to mark the season, uh, we are starting, as Stephen has already said, a new preaching series um, which we've called a Revelation at Christmas, uh, Revelation at Christmas, and the the clue really is in the in the title, uh, because as well as looking at, um, at key passages in the Christmas story, uh, we'll be looking at, at key chapters in what is my personal second favourite book of the whole Bible, um, the book of Revelation, and uh, and if you've read the book of Revelation, uh, you will agree with me that it is mysterious, um, weird even. Um, some might even say scary. Um, it's definitely difficult to understand. And the, the reason it's difficult to understand um, mainly is because of the type of literature it is. Because uh, when we look at the books of the Bible, um, each of them uh, fall into categories um, from prophecy to poetry, uh, from letters to law, uh, from the, the writing of history to the writing of songs, from, from wisdom to four biographies of the life of, of Jesus Christ. And, and, and each of them uh, bring with them uh, uh, different features and a distinct style. And, and this isn't unusual uh, because... Uh, a magazine is different from a newspaper, is different from a, an autobiography, is different from a textbook. It, it, each, each of them, again, vary considerably in style, even though they're, they're able really to communicate uh, truth. Uh, the book of Revelation, then, the, the category that that falls into is what we would call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. And, and contrary to popular belief, apocalypse... It doesn't actually mean the end of the world. Uh, apocalypse means unveiling. And that's really something of what we see in the book of Revelation. It's kind of an unveiling. It's an unveiling. In fact, uh, the, the point of apocalyptic literature is to unveil heaven's perspective on the matters of earth. Heaven's perspective on the matters of earth. And the way it typically does that is by kind of opening a, a window or, or, or like, a, like a portal into heaven. And, and a Revelation isn't the only book of its kind because we see apocalyptic literature in Revelation. We see it in the book of Daniel. We see it in the book of Ezekiel. We see a few apocalypses themselves in the scriptures. We see this in Acts with the stoning of, of Stephen uh, when he looks up and he sees kind of a window into heaven and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ stood at his throne. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6 who himself sees the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe filling the temple. We we also see apocalyptic style writing in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 24, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. All that to say that Revelation isn't the only book of its kind. Actually, uh, 
apocalyptic style writing is through the Bible, and if possible, it goes to enhance the overall depth, overall richness of what the Bible is, and God, as God is able to communicate eternal truth in different styles. In different styles. One of the key things about apocalyptic literature as well is its use of symbols and imagery with Revelation drawing heavily on, on Old Testament uh, symbolism, which has led it to have some of the most extraordinary images in all of literature. Uh, but with Revelation being apocalyptic in nature, and with the interpretation of some sections being debated, it's led to this most wonderful of books uh, sadly being neglected by pulpits, which given the times that we are living in, is a shame. Because to have a good, uh, solid, well-grounded, level-headed, coherent understanding of the overall message of this book helps. It helps. I go so far as to say it's vital because an understanding of the book of Revelation is able to give Christians extraordinary confidence. A confidence because you, you, you begin to see through the book the, the final destination and ultimate conclusion of human history. You begin to see who is in charge of human history. It gives Christians extraordinary confidence and it gives non-Christians extraordinary insight. Uh, because uh, because you, you get to see Jesus in his native environment. You get to see just who this Jesus really is. You get to see Jesus in his holiness, in his worthiness, and in his sovereignty. And so our heart and and my heart through this series is to preach uh, the apocalyptic genre, uh, bringing to you more of what the Bible calls the the whole counsel of God. And, And here's the big idea. Divinity and humility. The Jesus of the Christmas story is presented to us as a, as a blushing baby boy. Wonderfully profound. Incredibly important. But when life hits and, and chaos reigns, when you finally realize that you're in need of divine help, you drop to your knees and you begin to pray, uh, praying to a baby in a manger, the Jesus of the Christmas story may seem not worthy to receive our our prayers and our praise, when the cry of this book is, he is worthy. Conversely, to to see Jesus only in in bright, shining glory and never in breastfeeding humility serves to render Jesus unapproachable and terrifying. No. No. We need both. We need the manger and the majesty. We need the animals and the angels. We need the gold and the scroll. And these three contrasts will form the titles of the three messages in this series. I kick it off. God willing, Stephen will take next week and I'll come back on Christmas Eve and finish it off. And and let me say this. I am confident that if we see these three contrasts, we will have revelation at Christmas. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off by reading the, the, 
the whole of chapter. I'm going to read the whole of Revelation chapter 4 and compare it with this little eeny teeny weeny verse, one verse from Revelation chapter 2. Are you ready? From manger to majesty. Let's read Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat on, on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And, and, and around the throne were, was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were, were 24 elders, clothed in, in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne as it were there was as it were a, a sea of glass like like crystal and, and and around the throne on on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the, the first living creature like a lion the second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And, and, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honour and thanks to him who was seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and Power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. In a manger. Revelation chapter 1 begins in, in, in this way. The, the book is called The Revelation of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know this because that's what it says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And, and, and John, who Revelation is written to, this is likely John, Jesus' disciple, uh, John the Apostle, perhaps Jesus' closest friend on the earth. Uh, he, he starts by saying this. He says that he was on the island called Patmos, which is modern-day Turkey, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He references tribulation and what he calls the, the, the patient 
endurance that he and the other churches and the other Christians in the churches are enduring in the day. Essentially, what is going on here is that uh, the Christians of the day, along with John the writer, um, they are being persecuted for holding Christian conviction and seeking to speak openly about the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, uh, history records that in an attempt to, to kill John, he would be um, boiled alive. Uh, this is how industrial tribunals used to end for Christians. This thing on, that was, that was funny. I thought there would be, be a few more laughs there. <laughs> Tough crowd this morning. Um, uh, later in the, in the verse, later in the chapter, I should say, uh, Jesus himself appears in, 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 in bright, shining glory. In fact, glory is so dazzling, it knocks John to the ground like a sack of potatoes. He, he, he literally falls down. And, and Jesus has to encourage John. He, he, puts, he puts his hand uh, on John's shoulder. And, 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 and after John kind of rises before him, he begins to instruct him and tells him to write down the things that he's about to see and about to hear because they pertain to the closing of this age and the coming of the next age. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 2 then comes, and what we have in Revelation 2 and Revelation chapter 3 is John beginning to write down the things that he's seeing and hearing. And what John begins to see and hear are lots of issues, lots of issues in the church. And the issues that John is hearing about could predominantly be split into two categories. John hears lots of suffering in the church, and he hears of lots of sin in the church. Lots of suffering in the church, lots of sin in the church. In relation to suffering, John hears about uh, persecution, hears about poverty, hears about uh, legal issues, and he hears about cancelling. Lots of church members are, are struggling. In relation to uh, sin in the church, John hears about uh, moral compromise, sexual sin, uh, poor leadership, and bad teaching. Uh, John hears uh, lots of bad things about the church, and he hears lots of sad things about the church. And, uh, and quite frankly, John's experience can be our experience. Perhaps like John, you're here, and, and while you wouldn't say that you're being persecuted, you're, you're, you're beginning to feel that kind of invisible friction between yourself and friends, families, maybe even colleagues and co-workers. Uh, for, for others... Maybe for you, 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 this last season wouldn't say that again. Like John, you've been boiled alive, but you would nevertheless say that you've been badly burnt. For, for some others, like John, maybe you're hearing lots of negative things about the, the local church or, or the global church. Like John, he may well have been tempted to put his head in his hands and think, oh, gosh, what this and that, and, 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 and he could have been uh, troubled about the, the future of the church. For others, it's less that uh, you have concern for the church. You perhaps would say that uh, you have uh, problems with the church. Problems with the church. Uh, maybe the idea of kind of organized religion, as some call it, it doesn't sit well with you. It makes you uncomfortable. Uh, John John could have looked at the situation at hand. He could have looked at his situation personally, the church's situation uh, corporately, and the world's situation globally. And he could have thought, it really doesn't look good. 
that John's world isn't a world that's unlike ours. But then, enter Revelation chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 4, we are introduced to a throne. And not just any throne, we are introduced to the throne. The throne from which it was uttered, let there be light. The throne that sits high above the heavens. The throne that is at the control center of the whole uniform universe. We, we are introduced to the throne of the Lord God Almighty. No manger, all majesty. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. And here's the point. John's life privately, the church's situation corporately, the world stage globally, must all be seen in light of this big, fat throne. No matter the cancer or the conflict, revealed to us is a God that stands unruffled, unrivaled, and undefeated. This is the God that is in charge of your life, this church, and the history of the earth. Hallelujah. This is the Lord God Almighty. And John is, is transfixed with this throne. He, he, he's transfixed with what he's seeing, this portal. He's, he's transfixed with he who is sat on the throne. This is what he says. It's, he, he, describes, he can't stop describing it in, in chapter 4. He describes the one seated on the throne in verse 2. What goes on around the throne in verse 3. What's emitting from the throne in verse 5. Who can stand before the throne in verse 6. What lies each side of the throne in verse 6. Casting crowns before the throne, verse 10. To him seated on the throne in verse 9. What we're seeing here, dear friends, is what the Bible calls the Holy of Holies. This is the throne room of God himself. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, along with multiple other places in the New Testament, says that Jesus sits at the right hand of this throne. And what we will see this week and in the coming weeks is that God the Father rules and reigns with Jesus, his Son, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the chapter describes their worship by a host of animals, angels, and elders. Around the throne were, were 24 thrones, and, and seated on the throne were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Uh, we're introduced to a, a cast of, of heavenly elders. Uh, these elders sit on thrones, they wear crowns, and they wear white. They sit on thrones to imply authority. They wear crowns to imply royalty. They wear white to imply purity. 
Uh, interestingly enough, what, what it says, how it describes it is that there is the throne and there are these thrones. There's the throne of God and Christ, and then there are 24 thrones that are concentrically, if you like, around the throne. And then all of the other kind of uh, parties, if you like, uh, they stand further away from God so that the closest beings to God himself are the 24 elders that surround the throne. And the question is, who are the 24 elders? Who are they? Um, perhaps, perhaps I'll answer the question with a question. Who, who are the ones that the Bible says are seated in heavenly places. It says there are 24 thrones. And, and, and interestingly, we, we see this number later on in Revelation. Where possible, it's always best to use the, the book of the Bible that you're trying to understand to interpret the book of the Bible you're trying to understand where possible. And later on in Revelation, in chapter 21, which is uh, the second to last chapter of Revelation and the second to last chapter of the whole Bible, we, we see there recorded a picture described to us of the new heavenly city. Uh, the city that those that put their faith in Jesus in this life will stay, actually, and live in in the next life. And this is how it describes that new heavenly city. It says that it had a, a great high wall with 12 gates, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. It goes on to say, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Christ. What these 24 elders are likely to represent is the fullness of the people of God, Old Testament and New. This is you if you believe in Jesus. And we're told what they do. And the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. These 24 elders, um, they throw their crowns down as if to say, we wear crowns but only because of you. And they throw themselves down, as if to say, we, we sit on thrones, but only because of you. And it describes their worship. It says, singing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And they worship like this, it says, day and night. Cosmic worship being offered up by human beings. But what about spiritual beings? And around the throne, on each side of the throne, 
are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them, have six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. And the question is, what's that about? <laughs> what's that about? Let me say what they're not. What they're not is angels. These are not angels. Nowhere in the Bible, not one time, is an angel described this way. Angels are never described, not once, as having wings. Angels are never described as having the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, uh, and the face of an eagle. Angels are not described as having uh, eyes within and without. No, this is a a different category of, of heavenly being. Generally speaking, when angels are described, they're described as looking like, taking the appearance of men. Usually bright, shining men, yes, but usually men. They're not men, but they seem to be able to take the appearance of men. What we have here, likely in these, what, what Revelation calls living creatures, um, what, they take the, the characteristics, actually, of what the Bible calls uh, cherubim and seraphim. Uh, cherubim and seraphim. Now, cherubim and seraphim are mentioned approximately 70 times in the Bible. This isn't a, a one-off or, or two-off. Uh, they're spoken about openly. Uh, what this means is that cherubim and seraphim are not those little chubby babies with really small wings that are too sort of small to fly with, that are wearing full nappies that for some odd reason quite like to hug one another. Uh, no, cherubim and seraphim are entirely more fearsome than that. Uh, we see descriptions matching uh, uh, pretty much what we see in Revelation chapter 4 in other places in the Bible of cherubim and seraphim. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 14, Exodus chapter 25, and perhaps most famously in Isaiah chapter 6. Check out the references. And whenever we see cherubim and seraphim referenced in the Bible, they're always in relation to uh, guarding, if you like, sacred space. Uh, So, therefore, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, when the first man and the first woman uh, rebelled against God and God would exile them, cast them out of the garden, what God would do is he would appoint a cherubim uh, to protect and guard the tree of life along with a a sword, a flaming torch, that uh, sword that turned in each direction. They're, They're often appearing to guard sacred space. And, and this phrase uh, also appears a number of times in the Bible. It's one of these phrases that uh, you can read in the Bible and think, oh, that's wonderful and poetic, when actually it's being wonderful and literal, uh, because this is what it says multiple times. It says, God sits enthroned on the cherubim. That phrase, again and again, God sits enthroned on the cherubim. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2, Psalm 80, verse 1, Psalm 99, verse 1. Check the references. Uh, that, that is all that to say that it, it comes as no surprise with, with God sitting enthroned on the cherubim that when we see the throne room of God, we see these living creatures appear. It comes as no surprise with cherubim appointed to God's sacred space in the Holy of Holies, the most sacred space in the cosmos, as if it needed guarding. We also see these living creatures appear. And, 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 and what their, their purpose is, is interesting uh, because uh, just like the, the 24 elders uh, likely represent the, the fullness of the people of God, Old Testament and New, uh, these living creatures likely themselves represent the fullness of all the creatures that live on the land, from bird to beast, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, the face of a human, the face of an eagle. 
And what's interesting as well is that the diversity of the, the, the animal kingdom below is reflected in the diversity of the living creatures above. And it says that day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 other, different, distinct, higher, good, righteous, purer, perfect, holy, holy, holy. And it says that they worship like this day and night, likely in their native tongue with the moo of, a, of an ox, with the, the, the chirp of an eagle, with the song of a man, and with the roar of a lion. What John is hearing here is a cosmic cacophony of sound in worship unto Jesus Christ, the Savior, and God the Father. And, and this is really what we'll see in the coming weeks, actually, that all these creatures cry out with barks and growls and singing and howls. All the creatures join in universal worship to God the Father and Jesus, the Son of his right hand. Yet, in spite of the glory we see in revelation uh, we see humility in the incarnation god becoming a man so that rather than laying down crowns they lay down christ rather than living creatures it's lowly creatures Rather than cries of holy, it's cries of hungry. Rather than 24 elders, he would respect his elders. Because though this baby, this wonderful Christmas baby, has dominion over all, he comes to show submission for all. Though this baby has equality with God, he comes to receive equality with man. Though this baby has the power to raise you from the dead, he comes unable to raise his own head. Jesus the one whom angels cry out, holy, 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 for your sake would become humble, humble, humble. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger. And perhaps we somewhat romanticize the story. After all, a manger is a, is a feeding trough for animals. It wasn't cuddly. It wasn't cozy. It wasn't lovely. In a manger, there would have been animals around. Being placed in a manger there would have been flies. 
being placed in the manger, there would have been odor. The king of angels and animals and elders being born and being placed in a, in a trough. Think about that. It's inconceivable. He would go from being surrounded by angels to being surrounded by animals. He would go from throne to trough, from trough to tree, from tree to tomb. Such divinity, such humility. And you've got to ask the question, why? Why would, why would he do that? Why on earth? I mean, I wouldn't. And the answer is this, that you and I, we, we sin. And a knowledge of, of our sin uh, mingled with a knowledge of his holy, holy, holiness. Uh, when they mingle, what, what happens is there's something of a, a chemical reaction that occurs or, or a spiritual reaction that occurs in us. And, and, and we call the byproduct shame. And the equation is actually simple. Knowledge of sinfulness plus knowledge of holiness equals guilt or shame. This is why in and of our own selves, we, we don't feel comfortable around God. We don't feel comfortable around about, you know, going to church perhaps or, or, or after we've sinned, thinking about praying immediately after or singing immediately after or, or reading the Bible immediately after or, or coming to church immediately after. Why? Because there's something in us all that's aware of this throne. Truthfully, I didn't need to read you Revelation 4 for you to have known about this holy God that sits on a throne because in each and every one of us, subconsciously or consciously, comes a knowledge of this throne, this very throne. This is why we, we feel uncomfortable. This is why we feel this feeling of shame after we've, we've sinned. It's this kind of feeling of being naked, but like on the inside. And so what we seek to do is we seek to avoid the eye of the throne at all costs. Why? Because we know that by praying, by reading our Bible, by coming to church, by singing, it somehow mysteriously is, is bringing us before this throne. And so what we do is, is we, we try and hide away from it because for us, this throne is a throne of guilt. And here there is only one solution. There is one antidote. His name is Jesus but Jesus himself would, would leave the, 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 the acclaim of heaven. And he comes to, he comes to take the blame on earth. Uh, Jesus would be labelled guilty on the cross. The guilt that we feel as a result of our sin, Jesus himself, he, he would take on the cross. He was judged. He was punished. The punishment due to you, Jesus would take on your behalf. He took the guilt. And Jesus would take the shame, the shame 
from us as well. And, and this is something that, that preachers say. Jesus took the shame. But let me say this. The shame doesn't just go. It, it's, it's got to go somewhere. Jesus took the shame from you and he placed it onto himself. This is why Jesus... This is why Jesus would be crucified, completely naked, lifted up from the ground, in front of a crowd, in front of his mum, to receive the shame. Because Jesus, with his arms outstretched, was saying, shame, come to me, come to me, leave them alone, leave them alone, come to me. It's like Jesus was sucking up all the shame as he was a spectacle of shame. God himself for the whole world, the watching angels, the watching demons, receiving all of the shame that was due to you and to me. This is why Jesus at Christmas would be born in this way. This is why Jesus, the King of heaven, would be born of all places in a manger. The shame of it. This is why Jesus would choose to be born of a woman who would conceive outside of marriage in a culture where it was forbidden. The shame of it. This is why Jesus would choose to be born in a nowhere place, in a nowhere town called Bethlehem, the butt of all the jokes of the day. And call himself the son of God. The shame of it. Why? Because Jesus, even at Christmas, comes to us bearing shame. And it's pointing to the fact at his death, in his crucifixion, that he would be the one that would ultimately take the shame. It's a clue. It's a clue. And what this does, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, if you believe in him, what this does is it changes this throne. This throne that we've been learning about, that's a throne of guilt. No, if you believe the Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, it no longer becomes a throne of guilt, it becomes a throne of grace. It becomes a throne of grace that you can go to yourself. The, the one place in the cosmic realm that you wouldn't want to bring your, 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 your guilt, you wouldn't want to bring your shame, you wouldn't want to bring your sin, is before the throne of God above. But through faith in Jesus, it becomes the only place to bring your sin, to bring your guilt, to bring your shame. Because there, you receive, you receive mercy. You can approach this throne, the Bible says, with confidence. Confidence, knowing that God has become your father if you believe in Jesus and he will never cast you out. He will never turn you away. He welcomes you. He comes and he cleans you up because Jesus has done it all for you. And friends, this is why it's right to celebrate Christmas. This is why it's right to, to put up lights. This is why it's right to cook lots of food. This is why it's right to give gifts because at Christmas... We discover a God that, that doesn't say, shame on you. We discover a God that says, shame on me. And if you see this, dear friends, you've seen Revelation at Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we... We, we come before the throne of God above now with only one strong and perfect plea. A, a great high, high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And we say, we thank you that this majestic throne no longer has to be a throne of judgment, but can be a throne of grace. 
we wonder and marvel, Lord Jesus, at your descent for us, that you would leave the glory to take such shame. We marvel at your love that this speaks of, that you would love each one in this room so much that you'd be prepared to do that. We just say, you are the best. <laughs> you are the greatest. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. And all heaven sees it. The angels, the animals, the elders. And we join in and add our, worthy are you, O Lord, because you truly are. You've saved us. You've changed our lives. You've changed our eternities. And we want to celebrate you now. And everybody said... <laughs>